Hello again. And welcome back. We're now ready to, to look at Act 3 of this drama of the Catholic Church's struggle to proclaim Jesus Christ under difficulty and challenge and danger. Just to recap what we've seen thus far, last night I shared with you the story of the Reconquista of Spain and how for 700 years Catholic heroes, known and unknown, struggled against the tyranny of their Muslim overlords and the great drama that unfolded. Can you imagine? We've been in Afghanistan now since 9-11, barely 20 years now, not even quite 20 years, and for us it seems like forever. Imagine being at war with a concerted foe for 700 years and then winning in the end. So that's chapter one, the Reconquista. Chapter two, as we heard this morning, dealt with the arrival of Christopher Columbus in the New World. Now, as I mentioned then, I'll mention it again, this, these talks and my comments in these talks are not intended to whitewash or in any way sweep under the rug or pretend that the Spaniards and other European explorers were as clean as the wind-driven snow. They were not. Uh, they were not all saints. Some of them were, St. Junipero Serra, one of them. But many of them came with impure motives and a desire for gold and many other things. So please don't understand any of my remarks to be uh, condoning any of the bad things that were done by the Spaniards to the native peoples. But seeing everything in context, as you saw this morning, there was a true evil abroad in the land with human sacrifice. Uh, the, the average, historians tell us, was about 50,000 people <clears throat> sacrificed. One of, out of every five children suffered sacrifice in central Mexico as a result of the human sacrifice that was offered by the Aztecs. So I just want to reiterate this point so that all of us come away from these talks with a sense of historical perspective, but not a Pollyanna-ish notion that the Spaniards were just sweetness and light and coming to share Jesus with the native peoples. But they did come to share Jesus with the native peoples, in part at least. And so we left off uh, this morning with the arrival of Christopher Columbus, followed by Hernán Cortés, followed by, in 1531, the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And now we pick up in the year 1769. So we've jumped from 1531 with the apparition to now 1769. So 230 years roughly have passed. And Mexico has now, by this point, been Catholic and thoroughly Catholic at that for well over 200 years. There is an infrastructure of the faith in Mexico. And tomorrow, I have a much briefer talk I'll give you, but I'll give you some outline of the persecution of the church in Mexico in the early 20th century, so the 19-teens and 1920s, when going from 1769, where we'll pick up tonight, then we'll jump ahead another couple of hundred years, actually more like 150 years, and we'll see how badly deteriorate, deteriorated things became when the government of Mexico, atheist and Freemasonic, turned against the Catholic Church. Right now, we're looking at the, you might say, almost the golden era of the Catholic Church in Mexico during this time. And the person I'd like to focus on at the outset, his name was Gaspar de Portola, but we don't say Portola, we say Portola, because we're Americans. 
And so we anglicize everything. So rather than be very dramatic and say Portola 50 times during my talk, I will not say that. I will say Portola. Okay, so everybody understands where I'm coming from. He was born in 1723 in Balaguer, Spain. He died in 1784, also in Spain. And the backdrop to the story is that the Spanish crown decided to establish California missions and forts known then as presidios. There's a presidio in San Diego, which you can still visit to this day. There's, of course, the famous presidio in San Francisco. And those were the forts that would be garrisoned by Spanish troops to defend against not just hostile Indians, but also against the possibility of hostilities from Russia and England. Now, this is part of the story that often gets lost in the, in the mix here, but here's a little bit of background. Um, the Russians were sending patrols, naval patrols, and exploration parties down from Alaska, where they had a foothold, because obviously you've got far eastern Russia, then the Barents, sea, the Barents Sea, and then you've got this land, almost like a land bridge practically to, to uh, Alaska. And so they had many colonies, or not really colonies, they had many outposts in Alaska. Sitka, for example, is a place that if you ever go on an Alaskan cruise, you will visit a Russian Orthodox church, or at least you'll see it there in Sitka, which has been there for a few hundred years, because the Russians had the same idea that the Spaniards did, and that is, hey, there's this big empty place on the west coast of North America that's inhabited by a few handful of tribes, and it's rich in minerals and fur and timber and other natural resources. So the, the Russians were actively pinging the west coast of California coming from Alaska, coming down to the south, as were the English. And the Spaniards realized this, that they had already laid claim to this area, but they were doing nothing with it. So even though just ostensibly California, Alta California then, uh, was claimed by Spain, they realized that unless they did something about this and started establishing a presence in California, that it would soon be gobbled up by the Russians or by the English, most likely one or the other. Russian fur hunters were moving all the way from Siberia across Alaska and then coming down into California, and that was very unsettling to King Charles III, who was the king, so the king of Spain. So in January of 1678, sorry, 1768, he uh, sent letters to the viceroy who oversaw Alta California, which is everything from the Mexican border today north to Oregon. It even encompassed uh, Oregon as well. Uh, that was considered Alta California as opposed to Baja California, which is the peninsula that extends to the south. So with these letters, he ordered the viceroy to begin exerting Spanish control up the Pacific coast to establish colonies and missions. And the, the mandate originally was to establish a mission in San Diego and then another one in Monterey. And those of you who have visited Monterey, you know what a spectacularly beautiful bay it is. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. It's, it's almost amazing how um, they almost never found it, amazingly. In 1602, the Viceroy um, had, was visually engaged in this effort to begin establishing a presence in California. And at the same time, a Spanish explorer by the last name of Vizcaino, he had mapped the California coastline as far as Monterey, California, 
but it took 166 more years after he mapped the coastline before, the, before Spain realized just what potential California had, not only for natural resources, but also for population. In January of 1683, the Spanish government dispatched three expedition ships. Uh, there were 200 men, mostly soldiers, and they went to the southern tip of what is Baja California, so way, way, way down. The Italian Jesuit priest Eusebio Francisco Kino uh, spent, and he lived from 1645 to 1711, he spent 24 years on his own journeys throughout northern Mexico. This would be the state of Sonora and also Baja. And he established missions there. And eventually he went into what is now Arizona and is famed for his missionary activities there. I was talking to Bishop Wall about uh, Father Kino yesterday. And um, he was you know, immediately being from Arizona himself. Oh yeah, Father Kino, he, big deal. And I mean, big deal in a big deal sense. He was like a really big deal. It wasn't like the bishop said, big deal. Like he didn't say it like that. <clears throat> so Father Kino uh, was busy with his exploration and his efforts to establish missions. Another Jesuit priest, Juan Maria Salvatierra, he also worked on establishing missions, including the first permanent Spanish mission in Baja, which is uh, the Misión Nuestra Señora de Loreto Cancho, and this was in October of 1697. This mission became the kind of the hub of the, the friars as well as the administrators in uh, California. And other Jesuit fathers also went out to establish settlements throughout the lower two thirds of the Baja Peninsula. They founded 17 missions and some submissions as well. They were called visitas. They're not full scale missions, but something smaller. <clears throat> and they were established between 1697 and 1767. So as you can tell, as we get into the 1760s, we are now coinciding with the rise of the power of the 13 colonies in the United States and the coming to the fore of personages such as uh, George Washington and the seeds of the American Revolution, which would burst forth in the following decade. So more and more exploration was being done by the Spaniards. Portola, he was made governor of the Californias by the king and given overall command of everything that was going on there. Now, this is where we see the entrance of the Spanish Franciscan friar, now Saint Junipero Serra. He lived from 1713 to 1784, and he was the one who nearly single-handedly, he wasn't alone, and he had many collaborators and helpers, but in a, in a way he was the true leader and the, the, the impetus for so much of what happened in the exploration of California and the settling of California. Uh, he was named the president of the Baja Missions. Father Serra was known for his personal austerity. He was a man of great personal integrity. He slept little, he ate little. He actually had uh, a mosquito bite or some sort of a bug bite, we're not sure exactly what it was, on one of his legs that festered and became sore and it wasn't properly treated and eventually it led to a really serious and very painful malady of his leg that never healed for the rest of his life. If you can imagine having some sort of festering open wound caused by an insect bite and for the next 20, 30 years you had this painful and essentially untreated malady in your leg. Can you imagine the kind of uh, pain that he must have been in? And one of the things about 
St. Junipero Serra was that he, in, he insisted on all of his journeys up and down California, and that's a long distance, as you know, he insisted on doing all of it on foot. He could have ridden on a horse if he had wished. They made horses available to him. He could have ridden in a carriage or a cart if he had wished, but he insisted uh, in order to suffer for the sake of Jesus that all of his uh, travels would be on foot. So he was a very penitential man. And as we talked about earlier, not only with the black robes who evangelized the indigenous peoples in northern New York State and now what is southern Canada, they loved the people and they sought their, their health and well-being, and they would spare no expense, not even their own lives, in order to help the people by coming to them. And St. Junipero Serra was very much in the same order of magnitude when it comes to the, his holiness and his desire. Uh, St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I buffet my body and make it my slave. And he certainly lived a life of great austerity. Uh, the year before, this is 1767, the Jesuits were expelled from Mexico by a decree of the Spanish king, this is Carlos III, and the newly appointed governor, uh, Gaspar de Portola, he had to notify and remove the Jesuits from all the missions that they had established heretofore. So they had done very good work, they had been with the Indians, they had learned their languages, they had developed these missions, but because the Pope had suppressed um, or, or because the, the king, rather, had suppressed the Jesuits in Spanish lands, the Jesuits were kicked out, and they were also uh, interrupted from the, the other missions that they were developing. Uh, by February of 1768, Portola had gathered uh, 16 Baja Jesuit missionaries, and they set sail to mainland Mexico, and they were from there deported back to Europe, where they came from. Now, sympathetic to the Jesuits, Portola, he treated them very kindly even as he removed them because of the king's orders. And so now we have a vacuum. So all these Jesuit missionaries who previously were there operating were no longer there. And now we have pe people who are Christian who need the sacraments and they need to be married and such. So uh, this is when the Franciscan friars were invited by Portola to come into that area. So by July of 1767, uh, St. Junipero Serra was appointed the president of the missions of Baja, California, and he and 15 Franciscan friars, they uh, began taking over the work that the, the Jesuit fathers had begun. Um, let's see, in 1734 through 1736, there was an Indian revolt that resulted in the martyrdoms of two of the Jesuit priests who died before they were deported. In March of 1768, Father Serra and his missionary team, they, born, they boarded a Spanish ship uh, on Mexico's Pacific coast. They sailed 200 miles up the Gulf of California. They landed in the little town of Loreto two weeks later. And Portola, who is the governor of the Californias, welcomed them, and he gave them control over the mission that had been founded by the Jesuits in 1697. Now, there's no test on Monday, so you don't need to remember all these dates. But if it does help you to kind of contextualize when this is all happening, and you might think in terms of like the American Revolutionary War, George Washington, that kind of thing. The first ship, the San Carlos, is sa it sailed from La Paz in Baja, California in January of 1769. And then the San Antonio sailed from Cabo San Lucas 
in February 15th. I understand now that Cabo San Lucas is known more for the beer and the fishing and the vacationing than it is for one of the departure points for the California missions, but in any case. Uh, there was also a land expedition that started out from Loreto, and so this would have been a column of troops primarily with some of the Franciscan fathers with them. Uh, from there, uh, Portola's plan called for splitting the land expedition in two. The lead group was in charge of building a wagon trail and also pacifying the natives. Uh, another name that is very prominent in the history of the settling of California is Father Juan Crespi. Now, his last name was Crespi, but that would be tedious for me to say that over and over again, so we'll just say it the way we say it here, Father Crespi. He was the secretary and the biographer for the Franciscans with that group. The expedition led by Portola, which included St. Junipero Serra, and this was a group combined of missionaries, settlers, soldiers, um, including Jose Raimundo Carrillo, and he, that name Carrillo is a very prominent name in California history. Uh, he died in 1809. He was the commandant of the Presidio of San Diego. Um, they went north, and as they landed at different places, St. Junipero Serra founded more missions. The first in what we know today as California was founded in San Diego, San Diego de Alcala, and that was in July of 1769. So as Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were gearing up for the uh, breakaway from England, St. Junipero Serra was establishing the first of the eventual 21 missions in California there in San Diego. Then he established the Mission San Carlos Borromeo in Carmel in June of 1770. Now that's a huge geographical distance to go from San Diego to Carmel, but he didn't intend to leave that blank in the middle. His goal was to establish a northernmost point, and that's not the northernmost point. The northernmost mission is in Sonoma, in wine country. And maybe that's why they put it there, because they thought, hey, wine country, why not? Let's put a mission here. <laughs> if I were them, that's what I would have done. Then they had to deal with, among all the other issues, they had to deal with horrible earthquakes. In July uh, of 1770, there was a terrible earthquake and aftershocks that were experienced, and it was described in the notes, in the records that they took, as being violent and lasting as long as half of an Ave Maria, which would be Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is, imagine the earth is trembling. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Now that's not very long, but apparently it was very violent, and um, it really, I think, as you can imagine, it caused them to wonder, do we really want to do this? In July of the same year, there were six to seven more earthquakes, and, uh, and they, we reckon that those were in, in the 7.0 region on the Richter scale. In August, there were four to five more earthquakes. Um, the first ship reached San Diego in May, and this is where Old Town is now. They set up their camp in Old Town, some excellent Mexican restaurants there. Trust me on this. Um, they awaited for the arrival of the others because of the error in the mapping of Vizcaino. Remember I told you that he had mapped 100 and some 60 years earlier. He had mapped the co California coastline, but he made an error there in the, determining the latitude of the San Diego Harbor, and so the ships passed it by, and they landed too far north, 
And then they realized this isn't where we thought we were going to go. So they had to turn around and come back. And eventually they found their way to the San Diego Bay. And that's where the work on the mission began there. The San Antonio arrived in April in the San Carlos, which was the first ship to leave La Paz. Uh, it met with storms along the journey. It arrived much later at the end of April. And a third vessel that had been sent with missionaries and troops and supplies was lost at sea. They, they don't know what happened to it. So you can imagine between the earthquakes and the relative difficulty of the terrain and some hostile local people and one of their ships gets lost at sea. It must have been a very daunting time for these missionaries and the troops, realizing that there was no guarantee, there was no Hampton Inn waiting for them uh, to show up with clean sheets and running water. So this was a, a real effort, a labor of love for them to do this. Um, many of the men who arrived on this journey had scurvy. Uh, this, of course, results when you don't have enough uh, citrus and green vegetables and things like that. Out of a total of the 219 who left Baja California, only about 100 of them survived the journey to get to San Diego. Now, we have cruise ships that leave from San Diego on a daily basis and sail up and down the, the coast of Mexico. Uh, imagine the harrowing journey that it would have been, and over half of the people who started the journey didn't make it. Eager to press on to Monterey, Portola and his expedition, uh, including Father Juan Crespi, 63 soldiers, 100 mules loaded with provisions, headed north in 1769 in July. They marched about two and a half to five miles a day, and they reached the present site of, or they reached the site of present-day Fullerton at Hillcrest Park on July 30th, 1769. Then they went to uh, Brea Canyon in Brea, they arrived in what is now Los Angeles on August the 2nd. The following day, they marched out uh, on an Indian trail that would one day become Wilshire Boulevard. And they made camp at the present site of Santa Monica. Isn't it interesting that all these places, Wilshire Boulevard, Santa Monica, Brea, Fullerton, all these places, they had their start with the efforts of these uh, Spaniards. Winding around to Saugus, which is now uh, where Santa Clarita is located, they reached the area that would become Santa Barbara on August the 19th, and the present-day San Simeon, where Hearst Castle is, that's quite an experience if you've ever had a chance to tour Hearst Castle. Nancy and I went there on our honeymoon, and um, we, we, we've been back there before, and it's a very remote area, as you remember. There's not much out there at all, but they camped there. Uh, they were unable to remain on the coast because of the steep terrain, so they turned inland. And on October the 1st, they emerged from the mountains at the mouth of the Salinas River. After these 400 miles that they had marched from San Diego uh, and about 1,000 miles from further down in Baja California, uh, they reached the bay that they were seeking, but they didn't recognize it because when Vizcaino, the cartographer who had made the map of California, he had described the bay, this is Monterey Bay, as kind of round like an O. And even though the members of the party had marched twice along its beach, they didn't realize that this was this famous bay. So they kept going. Uh, they went to an area where Father Crespi named a creek Santa Cruz, which is where the city of Santa Cruz now, take note of the names, Santa Cruz, Holy Cross, and 
Bishop Wall and I were remarking at lunch today about how California is just completely laden with Catholic names, even though the state has no longer retained its Catholic identity that it once had, it, it, at the very least, and even a Christian identity, it can't get away from names like Santa Cruz, Santa Fe, um, Santa Fe Springs, for example, Sacramento, San Francisco, San Diego. So, I mean, the Catholic Church is having the last laugh on this one, right? Because we named all these cities. So no matter what you may say about San Francisco, it's still named after St. Francis. Um, they explored the area and eventually discovered the uh, area in the northern tip of San Francisco, uh, where the Golden Gate Bridge now stands. Uh, near a river, they felt several more earthquakes. Uh, they named the uh, river the River El, El Rio de los Temblores, which is the, the uh, Santa Ana River. Uh, four days later, Father Crespi renamed, I'm sorry, named the uh, Los Angeles River, now this is when they were further south, um, uh, Rio de Portiuncula, which is named after the Portiuncula in Assisi, the little house where Saint, it originally was a little ramshackle church that St. Francis of Assisi had been rebuilding. When God in, in dreams told Francis, Francis rebuild my church, Francis thought he meant that church, that little run-down, abandoned church. So he set about trying to build up that church. And he, he was successful, and he, he rebuilt it. And only later did he realize that the Lord was telling him, rebuild my church, you know, the whole church. And as an interesting aside, when Francis went to Rome to petition the Pope for permission to form the order that he wanted to form, the Pope previously had a, a couple of dreams in which he kept seeing this little friar dressed in very poor garb as a monk. And he saw this friar like building or lifting up and holding up a, a church that was falling down. And so the Pope is having this dream about Francis. Francis is being told by God, rebuild my church. So when Francis goes to Rome to meet the Pope, the Pope realizes this is the person I've been dreaming about. And that's when it became clear to Francis, because the Pope explained it to him, that he was called to help build the church as a whole, not just this one particular structure. But the Portiuncula is that church. It's still there. In fact, Bishop Wall and I were there with our pilgrimage, uh, 320 people. Actually, no, by then there were only 200 people. Now, they were not lost at sea or anything like that. They, uh, they returned home before the extension to, to Italy happened. But about 200 of us went to the Portiuncula, and you can still see this magnificent little structure, which is now greatly improved and be very beautiful. And it stands in the center of uh, the Basilica of Our Lady of the Angels on the valley floor below the town of Assisi. But I digress. Um, this was the place where the city of Los Angeles was established. So the shrine that was dedicated there at the Los Angeles River to Our Lady Queen of Angels was the, was the epicenter for the city of Los Angeles. And the original name, as you know, for Los Angeles is Nuestra Señora de Los Angeles, Our Lady of the Angels. Uh, Portola's route uh, went north. It followed fairly closely to what became the El Camino Real, the King's Road or the Royal Road, which we know today as the 101 Freeway. They met Chumash Indians along the way. Father Crespi's diary describes with admiration their canoes. 
the Indians gave them gifts of fish and seeds and acorn mash, and the explorers gave the Indians beads and ribbons. Now, when you hear that or read that, at first glance, chances are, as Americans, we're thinking, what a ripoff. You know, the Indians were giving them things they could use, food, seeds to plant for food and things, and the, the uh, Spaniards were giving them beads and ribbons, but you have to understand, for the Indians, that was currency. First of all, because there were bright colors, and often those bright colors did not exist in nature. So they couldn't easily find something that was bright red or bright blue or purple or yellow or green or something like that. And so when they saw these beads, which to us would be just trinkets, it's just things of no value whatsoever, for them, they were highly prized. They had value because they were things that they could not otherwise get. So don't make the mistake of assuming that the Spaniards were just sort of throwing trinkets at these Indians. They realized that the Indians, and then they began to use these as currency and they would buy and sell. So somebody who had lots and lots of these beads was considered very wealthy and could buy things. Uh, near what is now San Luis Obispo, they saw grizzly bears and they named the area uh, Canada de los Osos, the Valley of the Bear. They also named a large rock along the shore, El Morro. Does that ring any bells? Yes, exactly. Now, El Morro, that refers to uh, the Moors of uh, Spain. It had taken 78 days to travel to reach this point, about 410 miles north of San Diego now. It was October, the weather was wet and cold, and thinking that they had not yet reached Monterey Bay, uh, Portola pushed on again until October the 7th. Three weeks later, they were at Point San Pedro, which is now um, San Francisco on the peninsula that comes up to where the Golden Gate Bridge is. So Portola looked across the Gulf and he realized that they had missed Monterey Bay. So a scout told him he had seen a huge body of water to the east of them, which was the San Francisco Bay, and he gave it little attention. He thought, eh, whatever. Now, Facebook and Google and Apple and Stanford University and all the, you know, the big, they recognize the importance of that place. But at this time, uh, they did not recognize the importance of this place. On November the 11th, they headed south again, retracing their steps, trying to find Monterey Bay. And on November 28th through December the 1st, they were still searching for it. And though he still didn't think it was Monterey Bay, he set up a large wooden cross on a hill on the beach, and he carved a message there about their expedition. Now, most of the men at this point were sick. Uh, they were now living on mule meat because there was not much game to be had. So they were taking the sick or the injured mules and butchering them. They traded with Indians in exchange for food, and eventually they decided this is not working, so they got, they got back on the road again, and they hiked six months and went back to San Diego. They were in Monterey. They were there in Monterey on the hill overlooking Monterey Bay. And they, for, I don't know why, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't figure it out. Are you exhausted yet after all this traveling? <laughs> they traveled 1,200 miles. So Portola, he thought that they had failed in their expedition. Uh, however... There was a second expedition, and one of his officers, Captain Vicente Vila, 
So uh, one of his officers, Captain, Vis, Vis, excuse me, Captain Vicente Vila, he convinced them that they had actually been on the Bay of Monterey when they planted the cross, and that is now the area called Pacific Grove. So after replenishing the supplies, keep in mind that Father Sarah had been on this whole trip 1,200 miles walking on his bad leg, in pain the whole way, they decided on a joint expedition by land and sea to search for the bay again and establish a colony if they were successful. So they sailed on April the 16th, 1770. On April the 17th, the land expedition began. They followed the same route that they had previously found and that they had previously traced. 36, later, 36 days later, they arrived at the spot where Portola finally now could see a certain point of view of the round harbor described by the earlier explorers. Now having recognized Monterey Bay for what it really was, they, they made it camp and they celebrated mass near the oak tree that the earlier Carmelite missionaries had celebrated mass under in 1603. So this is 1770, nearly 200 years have elapsed now. And possession of this area for the crown of Spain was finally taken. Uh, on June 3rd, 1770, they laid the beginnings of the mission San Carlos Borromeo in Carmel, and they founded the Presidio or the fort at Monterey. In total, the Franciscan missionaries, especially St. Junipero Serra, established these 21 missions from this starting point. So San Diego in the south, Carmel or uh, Monterey in the north. Now, at this point, Portola was thoroughly exhausted and he decided that he would leave one of his captains in charge, and he left and never came back to Alta California. He was appointed the governor of Puebla, Mexico, and after his appointment, uh, he left in 1784, went back to Spain. He was in a, um, a high-level military position, and he wound up dying in 1786. So he served his purpose, but the, the efforts that he undertook with his explorers led to the establishment of the California missions. Um, a number of the schools in California that we even know today are named after him. So Portola Hills Elementary School in Portola Hills, California, Portola Elementary School in San Bruno, Portola Junior, Portola Junior High School in El Cerrito, and there's a long list of schools named after him. Probably few people even realize who he was anymore. Uh, Portola Parkway that runs through Irvine and Lake Forest, where I grew up, by the way, I graduated from El Toro High School, which is a stone's throw away from this. It's now considered Lake Forest. In those days, it was called El Toro, which is not as nice a name as Lake Forest, but they call it that now. Um, it is said that Portola used the same route that Portola Parkway now runs across in that area of, um, of Lake Forest. Uh, in World War II, the United States Liberty ship, uh, the SS Gaspar de Portola, was named in his honor. Now, just given the shortness of time, um, I wanted to conclude by speaking a little bit about the California missions and some of the realities pertaining to um, St. Junipero Serra and also what went on at the missions. So the first thing to know is that there's a great controversy surrounding this issue. Nowadays, it's fashionable to attack St. Junipero Serra and the other Spaniards for being cruel and slave masters and denying the Indians their freedom, and essentially using them as slave labor, and destroying their culture, and taking them away from their language. 
Uh, in fact, on one of my visits to the Mission San Dolores in San Francisco, I've had the privilege twice now of visiting all 21 missions on different pilgrimages. The first time with Bishop Wall, who came with my wife and me, um, but then I did it again another time. <clears throat> and sadly, there in some of these missions are guides who will give you a very negative view of the, of the work that was done in these missions. And what I like to do is offer another dimension of the story. So as I said earlier, there's no question that there were bad things that were done. And we have to distinguish between what we regard today as being acceptable behavior and what was regarded as acceptable or non-acceptable behavior in previous generations. So it would be the fallacy of historical anachronism to judge previous eras by our own sensibilities today, um, especially given how many terrible things we do today, like legalized abortion and other things that are done today that would have been unheard of in those days. But we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand the import of the past simply because we're seeing it through the lens of being 21st century Americans. And there are those who specialize in, in trying to promote this view that the Spaniards were sadistic, evil, bloodthirsty uh, men who wanted nothing more than to rape and plunder. And that's not true. So what about the missions? Well, keep this in mind. The majority of the tribes in California at that time, not all of them, but the majority of them, they were nomadic. So they did not build cities. They didn't build towns and cultivate crops. They were nomadic. They, killed, they ate what they killed, and they grew some basic crops and things. They fished, and they hunted, and they grew a few crops here and there. But they were not uh, into civilization building. They didn't have a written language. They didn't have many of the advantages that other tribes had in some more developed places. And so many of these tribes, they were at the mercy of the stronger tribes who were more warlike and bloodthirsty. We saw what happened in Mexico with the Aztecs and the human sacrifice. And so when the Spaniards arrived, they realized these people were relatively defenseless. They were not only defenseless against um, things like the elements and whatnot, but they also were defenseless against each other should they be attacked. So the idea of the mission was essentially a fortified compound that would accomplish several different things simultaneously. The first thing would be it would be a place of commerce where things that the Spanish were bringing to the New World, certain crops that could be grown there, and the, the whole idea of tilling of the soil and having a farm where people could be fed for miles around based upon what was, gro what was grown on that farm, and also other things, textiles and, uh, and glass making and making bricks and other things that the Indians did not know how to do, they taught them how to do that. So they became trained artisans, those who wanted to work in the mission. Now, nobody was forced to work in the mission, but there were emoluments, there were incentives to work in the mission. And one of the requirements to be able to live either in or near the mission and work there and receive this kind of training was you would be baptized. So if the Indian folk were willing to be baptized and be received into the Catholic Church, they received the benefit of becoming Christian and the things that went with that, but they also at that point then had certain responsibilities. Now we may say that's not how we would do it today. Okay, whatever, that's how they did it then. So the idea was a form of a social contract. 
And the social contract was, look, we're, we will build these missions. We will staff them with soldiers. We will, we will have a garrison here to protect you from marauding tribes, from wild animals, from the elements. Uh, we will teach you how to work metal and make bricks and how to paint and how to do music. We'll teach you how to read. We'll teach you. There are so many things that they did at these missions. And the Indians who participated in this, they were very elevated, you might say, from the status that they had before. And they were suddenly now in an, uh, in a, in an area where they could learn these things that they otherwise would not have been able to learn. And it helped them. It wasn't perfect, but it helped them. And overall, it was a much better situation for them than it was before that. Now, by our standards today, we wouldn't say, well, you can't do this unless you get baptized. But the, the fathers, the friars, they wanted salvation for these people. And they knew that through baptism, they would receive salvation if they you know, lived according to the teachings of Jesus. I just want to keep an eye on my time here. So this was a social contract. And overall, it worked relatively well. Were Indians punished? Yes, sometimes they were. If an Indian received baptism and was welcomed into the community, received training, was, was able to live there, for example, or be protected by this, if then the Indian said, well, I want to have multiple wives, or I want to go and do and come back, they said no. You know, if, if, you're, if you hire on, if you come in and you do this, then you're subject to our rules. You don't have to, and you're free to live wherever you want. You're free to whatever you do. But if you come in and are baptized, you become subjects of the king. You become, in essence, part of this extended operation that we're doing here, and you can do it or not do it. So when you see instances of Indians being punished, things like that, it was for that reason. Those were the rules that they had at that time. Maybe we wouldn't have done it that way, but you can see a kind of logic to it, and it was not wholly unreasonable that they would do that. Lastly, Father Junipero Serra himself, he loved the Indians, and he did everything he could in his life to not only show them the love of Jesus, but to show them he was there for them. He did not live in a fancy house. He did not wear fancy clothes. He did not eat well. He ate more poorly than the Indians did. He walked everywhere, as you already know. So he was the real deal. And this is true of the other friars as well. But he was a paragon of sacrificial virtue for the Indians. He showed them with his own life his willingness to take any cross necessary for them to know Jesus and to receive Christianity. And this, of course, is why he's a canonized saint. He wasn't perfect. None of us is perfect but he certainly was heroic in a way that very few people are today. So the next time you hear somebody mouthing off about how terrible St. Junipero Serra was or how enslaved the Indians were and those things, please understand this is a modern rewriting of history. Uh, even if you hear it from somebody who might have ethnic roots in this area, there's a lot of animosity toward the Catholic Church's presence in those days in this country. I think a lot of it has to do with what the Catholic Church stands for. But now you know the basic outline of the true story. And um, I hope in this story you will also get a sense of inspiration and encouragement when we see St. Junipero Serra doing these things. And then you get delayed in traffic, perhaps, or your coffee is cold, you know, or there's some other slight inconvenience that you might have to deal with. Maybe what he went through and what he did would put all that in perspective. Thank you very much, and God bless you.